Welcome to this episode of Modern Sales Wisdom. Today, we have a great guest, and I know you're going to enjoy this conversation. So who is it? Rob Willis. Rob has a crazy career. Really interesting, and we're going to be talking about that in this episode. Because Rob started and wanted to become a musician after school. But to pay the bills, he found a job as a tour guide in Berlin, where he learned all the arts and crafts about presenting and being impactful about his presentation. Today, he teaches people in a tech environment on how to have and hold great presentations. And at the end, like always, we'll find some useful tips that you can apply to your everyday job. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Rob as much as I did. Enjoy. Rob, can you take us back to your early days, maybe your first years in Eton College? How was your environment there? What kind of world did you grow up in there? I got to say, objectively, pretty weird. And whenever I meet someone and they discover that I went to this famous school, they think I like Harry Potter or something like that. And I have to say, looking back on it, it is a quite strange environment, for sure. But at the time, it was just school for me. Like, and that is how I do think about the place. I do think of it as a very, very good school with certain elements, of course, which are just way away from anyone's actual experience. But I think what made my experience of the place a little bit different was I didn't have that traditional background that lots of other boys had. Uh, my parents were, were artists, basically. My dad was a photographer and my mum uh, was a clothes designer. And so even though I grew up in this very traditional British establishment, I never had this idea of going the route that so many do, like going into finance, basically, is what most people do. And so that's why pretty much the minute I left the school, I went and did something completely different with my life and just kind of went, went somewhere else. And how did you feel you when you were growing up in that environment, but you didn't have the kind of same environment at home as you did in school? Because I can resonate with that. I also come from an artistic family. How do you think mm -hmm. that kind of shaped your view on the world? I mean, you've got to remember, I was like a teenager, yeah? So really, when I went home, my parents lived in the depths of Norfolk in the, the English countryside. So when I went home, it was just quite boring. So I was yearning to get back to that environment where my friends were and I could, you know, have banter with them and so on. One thing I'll say about the place, and I think one of the greatest strengths of that school is it's not vulgar, really. Like, obviously, there were some boys there who were incredibly rich. I mean, princes, for Christ's sake. But I never really felt like other people's wealth was being forced into my face at all. I never really felt like I was the odd one out for, some reason, for that reason. You know, of course, there were other reasons that one has as a teenager. You're like, you're so complex and nuanced and no one really understands you. But I never really felt like my alternative background, I'll call it alternative. Maybe it's not that alternative, but I never really felt like that was holding me back. And I think also that's the same reason that I've found people who went to my school are generally pretty good at talking to people from any background. There's just, you'll see them talking to people in the highest echelons of power and someone who is, is not at all. And you, we're comfortable in, in any kind of arena, I would say. And why do you think that is? I mean, there could be, 
And I think there very much probably is an entitlement that you get when you go to a school like that. Because, you know, you're basically viewed as special by the world because you went to this place, even though you know, there were some very smart people, but still kids, you know, just normal kids. But you are viewed in this particular way. And that must carry over slightly. And I'm sure that that might be the reason why I've gone on to do weird stuff, even if I was completely unqualified to do it, because I thought, well, I can do that. And most probably my view was actually more accurate than people who felt they needed to study and, you know, develop things and, and, and go back to university for five years to be able to do a, a, some, some job. Probably they could have just done it. But what a school like Eaton gives you is the word entitled is viewed very badly. And in some ways it is bad, but there are also positive aspects to it, I think. I like that, that, that answer because it's, it, put, it puts a flag on something. It's, it's, a, it's a way of how you carry yourself, entitlement. And I think it's like the way you expect the world to, mm -hmm. like it's open, you can understand it and you can, you can grasp it or, or communicate with others. So yeah, thank you for, for being so, so open on that. How do you think your, you know, coming from different, living in the, in the UK, and how do you think the whole idea of how people communicate in the UK and now you're living in Germany? had had an influence on mm -hmm. your first kind of ideas of how to present or how to communicate. And you said you've gone to a school where you've learned how to speak to other people. Then you have people, your parents who are yeah. who's a photographer who's not working in finance and uh, he's got to talk to people in mm -hmm. a different way. How do you think that has shaped your, I mean, I'm talking about your early years and, and to get a feeling of, uh, of, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this thing of, country and communication, I don't think I necessarily appreciated how much of an effect it had until quite recently. So there was a, an article from the World Business Forum about negotiating with different nationalities. And it had a chart of how different nationalities will communicate with one another. And I saw the one for the UK and compared it to what I teach people to do in business conversations. And though I would say my one is a bit more effective, it's slightly more focused and really kind of drive action. Nevertheless, it was pretty much spot on to what I teach. I hadn't realized how much my own cultural background had shaped what I thought about communication. And then I thought, okay, God, well, if they've got us down that well, they must've got the other countries down at least to a certain extent. So it's a fascinating article and it shows you know, what people like. Germans prefer a more linear, very deliberative approach. Americans will lay things out. The French love a long logical debate, like very vigorous debate. That's what they are attracted to. And if you understand what other countries are looking for out of a conversation, then you can shape the conversation to make them feel more comfortable. But also, if there is something you want to do that digresses, you'll know where they might feel uncomfortable, might try and switch things up or down or, or whatever. You'll be more prepared if you understand that. Of course, without wanting to reduce people to cliches, because that's also wrong. Uh, but there are definitely, and I've seen it in myself, some cultural elements that have remained. I mean, British people, we are famous for not getting, like, not saying what we think. And when you're talking to a British person, You've got a British family. I'm sure you've encountered this. You have to kind of read between the lines sometimes to what we say. 
to another British person, it would be absolutely obvious what we meant. So a few years ago, I was selling something on eBay and I just put it online and some guy, a German, wrote to me and said, hey, how much would you be prepared to go down to make a sale? And because I just put it up online, I didn't want to go down at all. So I wrote, as a British person would, not too much because I've just put it online. Now, another English person would understand that means go away, not buy a single cent. But then the guy obviously asked, okay, well, how much then? So I had to go and explain to, to him literally. But these are the kind of things that I'm becoming increasingly aware of. And you, know, you can play with them and use them, but they, are, they exist for sure. I can resonate with that. The correct German who wants to know exactly what it is and, and the English who wants to be polite saying, please don't talk to me. <laughs> after, after that time, you went to university and you came to Berlin where you became, and that's on LinkedIn, a, a tour guide, which has uh, obviously had a big yeah. effect on, on what you do today as well. Can you give us a little bit of a, the story behind it and, and mm -hmm. then we can talk about the implications which has had afterwards? Okay. Well, I'll say, first of all, that the, the only reason I became a tour guide was to pay for music because I wanted to make music, but that didn't make any money. So I needed something which was flexible and would be able to fund my dream. So for that reason, I never really appreciated tour guiding at the time, I'd say. But as you mentioned, it's been a profound for me. And when I started off, I started doing what are called free tours and free tours work like this. You can go and take a tour, don't pay a ticket price, but at the end, if you like it, you give a tip. And you, what you don't know, though, is the tour guide has to pay a marketing fee to a company. I paid at that time about three euros and it went up a little bit. So a group of 30 people would be 90 euros. So everything I got, I took and then I paid 90 euros and I got to keep the difference between that. And it was brutal at first. I was, I was not very good and I was barely making any money. In fact, I almost lost money one day from having to do this thing because I feel like I was just trying to wow people with how much I knew. It was very much going back to university and so on, how we're taught, at least in the UK, it's very much like amount of information and accuracy of information equals impact in that world. And that doesn't translate when you go anywhere else. And as a tour guide, I saw this in a very brutal way. And I, my money was running out. I was literally wouldn't make the month, the, the rent at the end of the month. And I had to somehow switch it around. And I started going on other people's tours to try and understand, okay, what are they doing? Are they telling jokes? Are they not telling jokes? Are they using picture books? Uh, what are they doing? And in the end, I kind of discovered that the people who earned the most were the people who almost used the least facts. They didn't use too few, but they just used as many as they needed. And the rest was all just storytelling, engaging people in the things that they want to hear from a tour guide. They don't want to get numbers and dates necessarily beyond a certain point. And that very much shaped, I think, how I thought about communication as well. Presenting is not the best way to give people information. It's the best way to persuade and to tell a story. If you want to give them information, send them a PDF. It's much more accurate. Yes, I do. I'm doing a trip to, to Lisbon soon. I don't think I'm going to take a PDF. I'll, I'll look for a tour guide. <laughs> you do want okay. the story. Now, you've, you've, had, you've very nicely explained your big learnings and aha moments out of, out of this story. And I'm, I'm curious mm. because 
you're working in tech now. You're teaching people how to communicate. And what brought you into yeah. that moment saying, well, I'm obviously tech is a bit far away from music. And so teaching the skill, I think, is easier to explain. Tech probably, I would say, almost fell into. I do have a passion for technology. I love technology and I really love reading about it. And I love the industry and I've taken time to learn more about the industry now. But I wouldn't say at the beginning I was drawn to tech. It's just in the English speaking world in Berlin, it's tech or tourism. And tourism <laughs> didn't exist from 2020 to 2022, basically. But I came into doing what I do now because the dream of music had kind of evaporated. I just didn't see it going anywhere, at least to the level that I would be satisfied with. And I had to think, okay, what have I actually learned in my time working? And I realized that public speaking was the thing that I'd actually learned. That was the thing I'd done most of. And also it was something that was a real pain point for a lot of people. So I started thinking, okay, how can I teach public speaking to people? So I went on Upwork or something, and I got some dude to scrape the information of all public speaking trainers in Europe. And I emailed them saying, would you have a, a call with me or a coffee or something? Uh, and tell me you know, about your job. And I think like two of them responded out of this. <laughs> and I'm very grateful to, to one of them who really went on to help me a lot. Uh, she is a former finalist in the World Championship of Public Speaking, a wonderful speaker called Olivia Schofield. And she introduced me to Toastmasters, which is a public speaking organization. And I started going to the club. I learned a little bit about that. What it really gave me was the formal structure of public speaking, because I'd learned everything through trial and error. And suddenly it began to make sense why certain things had worked and certain things hadn't worked. And it encouraged me to do different kinds of presentations. So in a pretty short amount of time, in about a year, year and a half or so, I learned a lot about what people would need in the business world. That was 2018 to 2019. And my plan 2019 was, okay, let's slowly move over into the, this new venture and gradually stop tour guiding. It's my plan with music as well is to slowly move over. That became a very abrupt movement in 2020 when I was on paternity leave and suddenly there was this virus <laughs> and there was no tourism. We felt, okay, it's going to be a couple of months. Tourists never came in 2020. Not very many came in 2021 either. Uh, but what it did do for me, that was an advantage, was it forced me to focus my efforts into actually making this work. And it also disrupted the market because all of the established trainers said, okay, we're not going to do online training. We don't think that that is as good as in-person training. What we're going to do is wait until it's over. And then some companies came to me I'd actually given a few workshops to them already and it had gone well. And they said, hey, can you do online training? And I said, yes, of course, I have some experience with online training, which was bending the truth hugely, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> but because it was so disrupted, people weren't used to, tra to training. And because I came and I had the tour guide approach of trying to make it entertaining and engaging and doing everything I could to make this high energy, I think people liked it. And of course, I got a lot better. Like a, a training I give now is going to be a million times better than back then. 
but it was the start I needed. And then I could begin talking to, to different companies. How important do you think that whole time of, you know, trial and error was in order for, not just for you to find your own style, which you can then teach, but in order to mm -hmm. give you the insights of it? Because when the majority of the people listening to this will be working in, in technology sales and SaaS sales, especially, yeah. and we have external speakers coming in and we have motivational speakers mm -hmm. and we have a lot of workshops, but at the end of it, it comes to, I think, trial and error doing it and, and, and adjusting. How important do you think mm -hmm. that phase was and what kind of, if you were looking back now, what kind of tips would you maybe have given yourself to, cause you seem very mm -hmm. open. And uh, a lot of people, especially yeah. the, living in Germany, you know, like to be very correct rather than open for, for <laughs> trial and error. <laughs> yeah. I mean, of course, people shy away from these things and they try and over perfect them to the point where they never actually do the thing. But I think trial and error was really valuable to me. And I think it gave me quite a unique style. Most traditional public speaking trainers don't speak like me. I find prefer my style, obviously, or I wouldn't do it my, that way. For me, they seem overly formal when I look at many of them, because I learned my skill in a completely different environment. Now, of course, different applications call for different styles, and they have every you know, bit of as much value as I do in certain environments. But I feel that the experience played a lot, but that's not the only thing. A great writer called Sean Callahan, who is a storytelling uh, right, amazing guy. One of his opening chapters was the, the statement that if all it took was practice, then taxi drivers would be excellent drivers. <laughs> Something along those lines. And um, so, what you need is is practice, but with constant reflection and some kind of metric to know whether you're doing the right thing. So my metric was what tips am I getting, and that meant I was optimizing for what would people find most financial value in what I was delivering to them. Very different to if I was standing on a stage and getting marked in a public speaking competition, which is all about how few filler words do you have? How well have you gestured in this particular moment? I'm literally just focused on this is what people find valuable or found valuable to me. And I kept a very, very complete spreadsheet with size of group, days of the week, I would, I would be able to tell you exactly what days of the week I was meant to work, in which months, and, and, and what would be the biggest value for me in that. One quite depressing thing I think you realize then is that just how much the 80-20 the rule, you know, that 20% of the time you're making 80% of the money and 20% of the people are giving you 80% of the money. But if I was to go back and do it again, I would probably encourage myself to be even more reflective in that moment, like really sit down and analyze and try things. Because one thing I think I did do, which is just very easy, is you fall into the habit of doing the same thing. And you're talking to people and you're saying it perfect word for word, but at the same time, you're thinking about what you need to do, buy for your shopping that evening. That dude's hat looks really funny. Oh God, it's, I'm a bit cold. You're not thinking about the people. You're not connected to them at all. But if I'd be more reflective and tried to update and try things out and be more active, then I feel I would have got more insights more quickly. And also if I'd learned some frameworks, that would just would have accelerated the whole thing. What kind of what kind of problems do you see the most people in tech have when they're actually presenting? 
I'm not sure whether this is just limited to tech, but the problems I see are people speak primarily to inform. And as I mentioned, speaking to inform is less effective than sending someone a PDF. If you just want to transfer information, send them an email, save them the time because they can't take in that much information. They speak to inform, they come with a slide deck. And maybe this is the root problem that they have is when someone says, can you make a presentation? They go and make a slide deck. So they never get that overall context of what this is about. And they'll start writing about one very detailed piece of information. So from their audience's point of view, they've got zero context. It's really in-depth and they can't take it in properly. And there is little to no call to action at the end. So people get to the end of a meeting. It's been exhausting, boring. They don't know what they're meant to do next. So the solution is they make another meeting. That's why I think a big reason why there are so many meetings, because people are not thinking about presenting and oral communication in the right way, not using it for the right things. How do you think this has changed in the, in the virtual environment? Has it gotten better or now we, I mean, we try to do a lot of asynchronous communication at the moment, but still it's mm -hmm. like a PDF <laughs> in a lot of cases. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the asynchronous thing is coming through and there are some amazing companies that are doing cool stuff to try and promote him. Uh, but definitely throughout the pandemic, the number of meetings people had went up full stop. People had more meetings and because they had more meetings and no time to prepare for those meetings, the meetings were less effective. And that bred frustration, I think, in people and what's called a bad meeting hangover, you know, when you're annoyed about the meeting, even afterwards, and you're exhausted uh, from it too. A specifically presenting point of view, it meant that people really hid behind slides because in Zoom or in uh, Meet or all of them, actually, when you share your screen, you disappear into a tiny box. And that connection that you were meant to build with, let's say you're a salesperson, you're speaking to a lead, you immediately disappear. And it doesn't matter if what you're saying is right they're still not going to build that great connection with you, which they need to have, because it's not just about the product. It's not just about the company. It's also about their relationship with you, the salesperson in that moment. If you look a bit shifty or they can't, they don't feel like they can trust you, then it will be harder to, to sell to them. I understand that. What do you think, or how do you think presentation and communication will move forward? Do you think there will be this enlightenment? Because a lot of people talk about we don't tell enough stories or we're too factual, but it just mm -hmm. seems to be coming more. Is there, where do you think the trend is going to and, and how yes, do you so think we can work against that? On the surface, you'd say that the trend is positive in that people are interested in storytelling. People reach out to me and say, we want storytelling training. And that's fantastic. However, there's still resistance because culturally, I don't think we've accepted storytelling in the business workplace. If it's a TED talk or if it's the moth or a storytelling event, love it. But in business, people resist. So an example was I was giving a storytelling workshop to a group from a tech company in Berlin. And I had the opportunity to talk to one of the participants a couple of weeks later. And I said, oh, cool. Did you tell any stories? And she said, oh, I can't because my boss just wants the facts. As if I meant that storytelling was non-factual in some way that I was telling her to lie. Because I think culturally, we think of stories as the nice to have, the entertainment, Netflix, 
basically. And we don't see them for what they are, which is just an example which makes a business point. That's all a story, a business story is. It's just an example which makes a business point. And if you just remove the word story from your vocabulary, then I think it's more accepted. Whether the trend will move towards more storytelling or not will depend upon leadership in these companies. If they become the change that we all want to see and embrace storytelling, then it will become more accepted. But if they don't, then people, I hate the term, but beneath them will never embrace storytelling. It really requires some action from leadership, not just Steve Jobs, like everyone, you know, all people in seedly leadership roles in tech companies, if they can embrace storytelling and start trying to do it themselves, first of all, they get a lot of benefit out of it, but also they begin to make the shift that the rest of the company needs. Otherwise, it's going to be very tough, I think. What kind of advice would you give if you're in, and I mean, I experience this, so this is a very personal question, if you're going out to give a presentation and you are expected to yeah. deliver a lot of facts, because it also demonstrates that you're knowledgeable, but on the other side, you want to be entertaining. Mm -hmm. How should I, let's say I mm -hmm. have a QBR, my, my quarterly business review. How should I walk into that feeling prepared with a story, mm -hmm. but having so that at the end, it's not just like, yeah, Henry did it, check, but this is what he took mm -hmm. from it. Is there, do you think there's just a, a very high level methodology you could maybe? It comes down to how long do you think you should present for, I think. And I think people make the mistake of thinking 30 minute meeting, 30 minute presentation, in which, of course, you'd have to fill it with loads of facts if you wanted to speak for 30 minutes. But speaking for 30 minutes is next to impossible, partly because they're not going to take it in, but mostly because they're going to be late for your 30 minute meeting. So you've only got 25 minutes. Then you want to spend some time at the end working on next steps. That's another five minutes gone. You've only got 20 minutes. And then you're going to start speaking and they're going to interrupt. So what I think we need to do then is just completely shift. And my advice for people is to start with an overview, to start with the story, the narrative, however you want to call it, but give the basic overview for about a quarter of the time that you realistically have. A half hour meeting, like I said, you've only really got 20 minutes, speak for five minutes. And that doesn't mean that you don't know the details, but you're giving space for the other person to go into the details that are relevant for their decision because they are going to want to ask you questions. In fact, it's their job to ask you questions. And if you leave no time for them to ask questions, then it's not going to, it's not going to work. You're just not going to get through it and you have to book another meeting. And probably more likely the project just stops or they don't buy or whatever. So if you give that overview and then use that as a, a window into speaking about it and then reaching decision, then I think that you can have both. You can have the engaging story, which doesn't overload people, and you can have the details, but only the details that are relevant. You also have a podcast in which you talk to people. Mm -hmm. And would you like to give us a little bit of insights? Because it's called Unicorns and my it's, it has the word Unicorns, which my daughters would go crazy about. <laughs> Maybe you can give it. It's obviously not oh, the God, same. Oh, yeah, unicorn. my daughter too. <laughs> yeah, leadership for Unicorns. Yeah, my, my daughter got very excited when she saw the picture of her. Yeah, her big thing, like she wants a unicorn cake for her birthday party next month. It's all unicorns there. So leadership for unicorns, I wanted to speak to experienced tech leaders because I was very aware of my place as an external trainer going into these companies. 
I've got my experience that I learned from my experiences, which I think are relevant and very useful to people in tech companies. But I also understood that people who do MBA, who write MBA courses, people who write online courses, corporate trainers, they're still external. And storytelling is a fantastic way to actually learn things which the best practices won't teach you. So the concept I came up with was I would get a experienced tech leader who's been you know, in a lot of different places, ideally in different industries as well, and get them to share one story about a time when the best practices didn't help them, where they were overwhelmed, maybe personally, maybe in a business sense, maybe as a leader, that they would share that story and we'd talk about it and see what learnings we can take away, which maybe other leaders would find useful. And the target audience is other tech leaders. So what I want to do is I want to normalize the challenges that people have. I think that's a great reason for telling stories too. But then also see, okay, what worked for that person? Maybe it can help someone else too. And there's been some amazing stories that we've heard. People take the, the term story in a different way. Some people talk about lots of individual examples that kind of show or say something about their whole career. Some people talk about a meeting that was really, really hard. Some people talk about awful physical challenges that they had to overcome. Really, really challenging stuff. But in all of those conversations, I think there are lots and lots of takeaways from those stories. And it's also much more engaging, I think, than just having a podcast where I ask people for their best practices. I don't think you're going to get the same sense of how it really works in the real world if you do that. I just want to say thank you because I found you on LinkedIn for the first time because you had mm -hmm. some things from your from your podcast, which were ended up in my feed. And uh, I've gone through your feed and I, I really enjoyed the content. So anybody who's listening, I really recommend that you tune in and find Rob to, to really and follow him. So thank you very much for sharing that and making that public. It's I think it's very valuable. So thank you. Rob, being British and living in Germany, how do you think different languages and nuances can impact the way a story is perceived? Well, I think storytelling in itself is pretty universal. We've been telling stories longer than there have been nations, as long as we've been able to speak, we've been telling stories. So I'm not sure that that is really the distinction. And also we've grown up hearing the same stories. I grew up in an English speaking country, but I heard Brothers Grimm stories, people in the States did as well. But what I would say is some emotions are captured better in different languages. Some things, like tiny details that you can't really explain, and only if you speak the language can you really get the feeling that we're, we're talking about. And I'm sure you get this too in a, in a bilingual family. Uh, my house, we're actually trilingual at home. My wife is Brazilian. I'm British. My daughter goes to Kita in German. And sometimes there's just a word. And our, what we speak to each other is mostly English. But this weird little mixture, sometimes we'll throw in a word like saudade. You know, the word in Portuguese meaning you miss something. Schadenfreude. I mean, my daughter doesn't say Schadenfreude. She's three, but <laughs> maybe she should. <laughs> and in English, like banter, I've never found a good enough word to describe banter. And it's so important to British culture, so much part of how we communicate with each other. So though, a long way of saying, I think stories in themselves, the structure, the telling of stories, you need to get the same things right in any language. Sometimes there are tiny nuances, things that you can't really explain when you're speaking in a different language. That's a good answer.
This one's very similar to from that. It's more about presentations and not about language. Looking at different, not just looking at the language, but looking at different, you know, cultures. How do you think communication, I mean, you work in an international environment in, in Berlin, in the tech industry. Mm -hmm. How do you think these kind of different cultures, when they come together, is there maybe even a, a single tech culture? What do you need to watch out mm -hmm. for or understand and be open to? There's definitely a tech culture and it's pretty universal mistakes that I have to help people with. I wouldn't say any one nation is worth worse than other ones. People are, you got too much data, not enough context. They're not using enough stories. They're not action driven in their communication. But of course there are cultural nuances. And I found this a lot with people I work with actually. One lady I was working with from India, she'd worked in Indian companies. She was used to the way that people spoke to each other in Mumbai, where everything moves very, very fast. And she had to come to Europe and work with people who are from the Netherlands, the UK, the States, very different accents, different words they use, but also just very different things that they said and different things that they looked for from other people. I remember on my podcast, our mutual friend, Sasha, her line was, I'm not rude, I'm just Dutch. <laughs> which I thought was really amusing. That's something she found when she went to work in Ireland. She had to change the way she naturally communicated. And on a personal level, I've probably found when I work with Germans, I don't have the formality that they have. I get away with it because I'm not a native speaker. So I can say do and people don't worry too much. But I remember even back at university, and the universities in Germany are much more hierarchical than, than in the UK. I was calling the professors by their first names and people were almost kind of looking at me shocked. They said, no, you have to say Herr Ackermann. And like, oh God, sorry. <laughs> so there are nuances, but there is also a tech culture or maybe it's a corporate culture, um, which binds us together in the mistakes that we make. And how would you describe that tech culture is maybe a little bit different because you said it's corporate culture. Is it hierarchy or is it? Okay. Because I always felt it's very free, the tech culture compared to other cultures, but maybe you can teach me mm -hmm. more. Yeah, you're right. There is, there is a, an informality. And for me, which is fantastic, a speed to tech. I love this, how fast tech companies move. I'm a very impatient person. I think that's probably why my work is about trying to help people get to the point quicker. It's because I'm so impatient. Um, and tech wants to get things done quickly. And I've noticed you know, working with a different company, you know, I, I was used to just sending a pro proposal for something and they say, okay, let's do a workshop and we do it and that's it. But then when I did something outside tech, I was like, okay, send a proposal. I thought, okay, that's great. They want to do it. But then I had to send a, an offer for which then they would make an order for which then I would have to make a confirmation of the order. And that just sounded so goofy to me. Like what, why do I have to do all of these separate things when we know I'm going to do it? And I think that might be, that difference could be because tech previously had more money than they knew what to do with. And it was all about scale, 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 throw money at stuff, get it done quickly. That's changing now. Now there are more stages that people need to go through to get things approved. Generally, as a rule, I would say you're right. Tech is less formal and moves faster. And I think all the better for it. Now in technology or SaaS sales, it's, we have a lot of complex data. How do you think, or what's an easy way to put it into a story? Well, there's, there's two ways of looking at storytelling when you're explaining a topic. And we can make the distinction, I think, between a narrative and a story. 
So they're very nuanced differences and probably very few people would use them as synonyms, but they are slightly different. So a narrative doesn't really have a beginning or an end. It's really a snapshot of a particular moment. And when we're presenting, when we are talking through the Q4 revenue change or whatever, we're presenting a narrative here. We're giving a snapshot and we're talking about how the change was. And that's what a story does. A story takes you from one state to another. You give the context at the beginning, you have the change, and then how it resolves. And it can be good or bad, it can resolve in a good or a bad way. So what you're doing is you're simplifying all these data points into one change, really, that has happened in the period of time. And the resolution, the period of time will differ. If you're talking about the S&P 500 since the year 1950, that's a very different resolution to if you're talking about the last month or so, yeah? But it's the same principle, I think, that applies. The other way that we can explain, and I think really make data and complex issues more relatable and more engaging, is by zeroing in on individual data points and talking about the human impact. Because almost all data has a human, Im human impact, and if it doesn't have any human impact, then probably isn't very important. But when you can zoom in on that and say, and it could be load times, it could be, it could be any number of things, it could be NPS scores, there is a human impact to this. And telling the story of that shows you why something is important and how we need to think about it. So those are the two things we need to do. We need to find the narrative, the overall change that has happened, and then those examples which bring the ideas to life. Let's say, to make it very simple, if you're working in tech and you get an assignment to hold a presentation, and what would mm -hmm. advice would you give? Maybe you can start a sentence or finish the sentence. If I get the presentation the next time, which I need to hold for X, Y, Z, the first thing I need to do is... Understand your objectives. What are you actually trying to make happen with your presentation? Have everything zeroed in on an action to be taken. There is a writer, he's gotten his name, but he was a Navy SEAL and he now talks about crisis management. His line is all communication that isn't actionable is just noise. There is a surplus of information out there. Everything needs to be centered in on some kind of action that needs to be taken. A binary yes or no. Did they do it? Did they not do it? Salespeople are a bit better than this because they have their funnel. They know what they need to do to get along that funnel. But in other parts of the company, they need to be just as objective, I think. And you also forced, I think, to really consider, is this a reasonable goal? Are they really going to sign a 30 million euro deal after five minutes of me presenting? Probably not. I mean, unless 30 million euros is not a lot for them. But most likely, you need to find some sort of call to action, some sort of thing that you're building towards. Yeah, so that's the first thing. That's a great start because uh, it really puts you down to like, where do I need to go? It gives you the compass. So that's very, very valuable. Now, yeah, the, tech exactly. world is, the tech world is changing extremely fast and stories are always evolving. And I have mm -hmm. the feeling if I go to presentations or I go to conferences and I've just been to a conference, you start hearing the same stories <laughs> because they're always coming in there. At the moment, everybody's talking about AI and everybody's got the same AI stories. How do you keep these fresh and engaging mm -hmm. and also interesting, I mean, because we like to hear what we know, I think. Yeah. So, but so on the other side, how do we probably make it the and find something new? Yeah. So if you're going to a conference and looking for stories, it could be that the most interesting stories are not the ones that people are telling on stages. 
it could be that the most interesting stories come slightly more from the fringes. So if you're trying to find interesting stories in your, in your company for, let's say you have a particular initiative, let's say Zoom wants to find ways to integrate AI or new technologies into it. It's very likely that there is a small part of the company where something in that direction is already happening. Maybe a very small number of people, but we need to find those stories. So go where the stories are, go where the action is actually happening. By the time it's got to a conference stage, that person is probably given the keynote like 20 times already, and it, they were preparing it for six months before. So that's, that's old. But if you get into conversations with people and ask questions, the kinds of questions that invite stories, questions about location and time, because all stories happen in a place and a time, ask people about their experiences. That's how you find stories. It's by going where it is, hearing what's going on. And also looking at your own life, of course. Then there's almost always more going on than perhaps we give credit to. And do you think there's a time where we shouldn't be telling stories? Yeah, that's that's easy. Whenever a yes or no answer is asked, or if someone asks like the time, it would be a bit annoying if someone said, Well, this reminds me of a time three years ago where I was also asking someone for the time. Apart from that, and again, don't think of it as a story. Think of it as an example. Every time you give an opinionated comment, you should be giving an example to backing it up. Otherwise, why do you think what you think? If it's just a hunch, you need to be honest about that. Very often, it will be because of something that happened. Generally, that's the only times that you don't need to tell stories are times when you obviously wouldn't tell stories. Yeah, Generally, it always helps. What tips do you have for giving online presentations? So I think the thing about online presenting, uh, at its core, Think about online presenting the way you would think about in-person presenting, which is you start by thinking about what is the experience of my audience and then prepare accordingly. So when you're thinking about preparing your stage, you need to make sure that you can be seen, you're filling up the frame, that there's nothing distracting behind you, the same that you would do on a stage. You wouldn't go on stage and hide behind something. Yet for some reason, when we're online, we disappear from camera, we put the slide deck up so we can't be seen, we're just a tiny box. Think about the experience of your audience and just adapt to that. This also means you need to think about how you put your slides together because it's very unlikely that your slides are being shown full screen. Very likely that you're in a little box, one window amongst lots of others, there's a Slack window, there's WhatsApp, there's whatever. You're just a small thing. So you need to make sure that whatever you're showing is going to have a lot of impact at a very, very small scale. But again, all comes down, work out what's the experience of your audience in that moment. And once you think like that, you probably work it out, I think. And for the last question, which I asked everybody, obviously, we now know you a bit. And if you go onto LinkedIn and, and follow you, you will get more information of who you are but do you think or could you maybe share a little fact about yourself but maybe a fact that is not so well known about you uh, yeah maybe i've spoken about it before but not for a long time i once almost became a pop star by mistake in germany <laughs> by mistake exactly playing an instrument i didn't know how to play as well <laughs> it was in my studio where i worked and they had this project as a, it was meant to be 80s elect, German speaking electro pop music. 
Uh, the band was called Dayon at the time. And it had been created by a producer friend of mine with a singer. And they were having a little bit of trouble getting it signed. Uh, though the songs are pretty cool, they didn't ha the, the labels weren't convinced that this was the band that they wanted to sign. So I said as a joke to my friend, oh man, it's always been my dream to be an 80s keyboard player. You know, I, I thought of Bill and Ted with all the keyboards around them, you know, when Mozart's in the shop. And he said, brilliant, let's do it. I said, but you know, I don't know how to play the keyboard, yeah? And he's like, fine, just, just pretend, yeah? So I kind of thought, okay, well, I'll do it then, I guess. And we began practicing. And our live show that we did a few times uh, around Berlin, we played in Bremen. Uh, it was ridiculous. Uh, we had lights, lasers, me pretending to play the keyboard. And then we had the Drehscheibe, a turning platform. And at various moments in the, in, the, in the concerts, one of us would just go and stand on the turning platform and just kind of make a pose and just turn down around very, very slowly. And it got to the point, we began to get the interest that we wanted. And we ended up getting an offer from from a major label, I'm not going to say who, but a major label. And we were offered 60,000 euros to make an album with them. So it looked like this was going to take off pretty, pretty quick. Somehow, though, I guess the guy thought better of it, probably for the best, to be quite honest. And then he suddenly ghosted us and, and then the deal fell through. But we had the contract. Everything was basically ready to go. And I just wonder, OK, where would my life have gone differently had that contract had been signed, like what would have happened? But it certainly taught me a few lessons about not really being a pop star. I don't think I learned anything about that, but about making deals with people and what gets the deals over the line and, and maybe what you need to be aware of afterwards. <laughs> I love that story. That's definitely one of my favorite answers till now. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Rob. It's been a real delight. And thank you for being so open and, and talking about your entire life. It's really it gives us a lot of insights. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for staying until the end of this episode of Modern Sales Wisdom. I really enjoyed that last answer from Rob, and I hope you did too. If you haven't done so, then smash that subscribe button. It really makes a difference, and it makes me happy. So if you want to connect with Rob or me, the best way to do that is via LinkedIn. I'll put both our links down in the show notes. So happy to connect, and I look forward to being with you on the next episode. Take care.